0: you. <music> I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer, I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people, in short, life, all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other, if we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Today's interview is a dream come true for me. You'll hear a lot of hyperbole and excitement during this interview, but this was not only my happy place, it was my is this really happening place. What a perfect way to end the first season of Holding Up The Ladder with my guest today, Dr Susan Rogers. For those of you who may not know, Susan is most famous for being Prince's sound engineer. She's responsible for recording, in my opinion, some of Prince's best work, Purple Rain, Sign of the Times, Around the World in a Day, and Parade.
1: He was extraordinarily prolific. So at age 24, he was embarking on his sixth major label album. That was Purple Rain, his sixth. And he's 24 years old. And then consider that of those albums, he played 90% of just about and and was capable of playing other than horns live horns which i don't think his first records had any live horns he was capable of playing every instrument Incredible. nobody plays that well and sings that well and writes that well and is that prolific mm. and manages his career with such a keen business acumen and on top of all that isn't from the industry There's some music I love just for
0: the sheer fun of it. It may not be very sophisticated, but it just makes me happy. Then there's music that I don't particularly love. You know, it doesn't move me, but I appreciate it for the technical musicianship involved. Then there's music that makes me stop and ask myself, how did they do that? So imagine what it feels like for me to know that Susan Rogers was in the room when Prince recorded Purple Rain, When Doves Cry, Raspberry Beret, Kiss, Let's Go Crazy, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, Adore, Sometimes It Snows in
1: April, the list goes on album sequencing was hugely important to him we spent a lot of time on that and many uh, of his lesser songs appeared on the album only because they assisted the sequencing uh think of play in the sunshine on Mm -hmm. the album sign of the times i mean play in the sunshine was was just there it's not a great song not by any measure it's good it's a good track we sped through that thing we just sped through it because it just needed to function as a segue piece in between scenes Susan Rogers started off
0: as a studio maintenance technician for Crosby, Stills and Nash in Hollywood. She responded to an advert looking for a technician for Prince and got the job. I won't spoil the story, I'll let her tell you herself about her time working with Prince, but needless to say, it was life changing. She then went on to engineer and produce for a diverse roster of artists, including David Byrne, Bare Naked Ladies, The Jacksons, Tevin Campbell, Paul Westerberg, Ge and Tricky. Susan then moved into neuroscience and has a doctorate in psychology from McGill University in the States, where she studied music cognition and psychoacoustics. She's now a professor at Berkeley in Boston and is the director of the Berkeley Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory. She's currently writing a book and has completed a research paper about how we listen and respond to music
1: and the rewards we get from it. The reaction that you want is for someone to say to him or herself, I want that. I need that. Need is stronger than like. Way stronger. Yeah. When you hear a piece of music that you realize, that's the music of me. I need that. It answers a question for me. It solves a problem. It gets me to move in the way that I want to move. It's me. It's me. (laughs) I love that feeling. I love that
0: feeling. I've loved it my whole life. I've made a career out of it. We talk about the process of making albums, about the science and artistry of engineering.
1: The engineer's job to to really, really, really be an artist with it is to uh, be able to dial that microscope all the way in to the technical details, all the way out to how those details serve a larger function in the bigger picture. Right. The difference
0: between analogue tape and modern music making, about how our brains and our bodies respond to music, why some people respond to one form of rhythm over another. We talk about artists that inspire us, and of course, we talk all things Prince. I would have loved to include excerpts of Prince's music as reference points to what we were talking about, But as you can imagine, the permission needed and the cost was slightly outside my budget. So we'll have to go back and explore the songs we're referring to after this interview. Last thing, right at the end of the interview, you may hear a clatter or two. Something was happening in another room, but you're going to hear an interview with one of the most singular, focused, knowledgeable, curious and generous people. I told you I was excited about this interview I've ever met. So Susan, (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. I am so excited that you would even say yes. I should say to the listeners, um, I just thought, I I know your work because for people who don't know, you were Prince's sound engineer and you... um, engineered some of my favorite some of my favorite records of his you know sign of the times purple rain just incredible music and um i actually just sent you an email i thought i'm just going to ask her maybe she'll say yes and you said yes it was the most exciting thing
1: (laughs) oh that's so sweet thank you so much i appreciate being asked i appreciate talking about prince uh he was my favorite artist too when i went to work for him And so, of course, I understand where his fans are coming from. I share their view completely. It literally was a dream come true that I became his uh, technician and then he put me in the engineering chair. Uh, So the way that that happened was I uh, was born and raised in Southern California about 45 miles outside of Los Angeles and as a kid I just was passionate about records, I, I, I wanted to be involved somehow in the art of record making, but not as a musician or a performer or songwriter, I don't do anything like that and I have zero passion for it, I just wanted to be a, a on the receiving end of music, that's where my musical engagement happens. So uh, in order to do that, at around age 21, I moved the short distance to Hollywood and I started just preparing myself to enter this business. This business really likes people who are self-starters, who are intrepid, who have their own momentum, who aren't standing by the side of the highway with their thumb out waiting for a lift, but who actually are, they're willing to walk the distance if they don't have a car. And I was one of those people. I was highly motivated. Mm. So I I got books and I studied on my own. I studied um, the basic principles of electronics and acoustics and magnetism and Mm. the basic recording techniques. and So a company in Hollywood picked me up. They were called Audio Industries Corporation. I was with them for a few years and they trained me to repair consoles and tape machines. Then uh, Crosby, Stills & Nash lured me away uh, close by in Hollywood to their studio. I worked for them and occasionally... My role with them was their studio maintenance technician, keep everything running, but occasionally they'd put me in sessions as the assistant engineer when our regular assistant was busy. So I was doing that when I heard through the grapevine that Prince was looking for a full-time technician. He had just come off the 1999 tour, Mm -hmm. and uh, he was... He already started some of the recording for the album Purple Rain. He was planning the movie. He had big plans for this sixth album he was going to do. So he needed a full-time technician in Minneapolis. And when I heard through the professional grapevine that he was looking, well, that that was my job. I mean... Uh, I was he was my favorite artist in the world I had seen him on tour on the Dirty Mind tour and the controversy no the 1999 tour I uh, had all of his records I'd been a fan since day one very first time I heard him uh, on on black radio in Southern California I heard his first single Soft and Wet and like (laughs) I realized right away oh my gosh this is the artist I've been waiting for and so I I interviewed and and I uh, they hired me and I moved out to Minneapolis and and joined him just as purple rain was coming together it was a really exciting time Mm.
0: and you know what i i love about that because prince was actually only 24 wasn't he at the time which is just insane to me yeah and and the thing that always strikes me so much about him is that as a musician he played every instrument like it was his first instrument you know
1: there's if you, if you list the ways in which Prince was extraordinary, I believe that that list is longer than for any other artist. Mm. He was extraordinarily prolific. So at age 24, he was embarking on his sixth major label album. That was Purple Rain, his sixth. And wow. he's 24 years old. And then consider that of those albums, he played 90% of just about and and was capable of playing other than horns live horns which i don't think his first records had any live horns he was capable of playing every instrument incredible nobody plays that well and sings that well and writes that well and is that prolific Mm. and manages his career with such a keen business acumen and on top of all that isn't from the industry yeah grew up in North Minneapolis, Minnesota, not the child of some uh, Hollywood rock star who could have taught him how to do everything, Mm. just a kid. And on top of that, on top of all of the records he was making for himself, He did something extraordinary that no one's ever done. Prince created his own competition. He Mm. recognized that just like Seattle in the 90s, just like Laurel Canyon in the 1970s, that where there is a scene, well, certainly London with the punk scene in Mm. in the late 70s, where there is a scene, you've got greater momentum and greater attention and so he created his own competition he created the time he created vanity six he -hmm. developed and created sheila e so it would appear as though there was more than one artist coming from this midwestern town essentially there was not Mm -hmm. there was prince (laughs) yeah (laughs) no one's done that no one could do that so to keep to keep up with him at that frantic pace Mm -hmm. of writing recording touring, gigging, rehearsing. I've never seen anyone who even comes close to matching him for that ability. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And what I'm really interested in, I'm trying to imagine, you know, what the process was like when you're creating with him, because I've seen like documentaries with him and he could essentially do everything himself, including the engineering. (laughs) So when you're there, what exactly is you, are you doing? You started out as a technician, so you were repairing things, but you moved on to being an engineer. How, how was that process? Tell me a little bit about how that worked and how you two work together.
1: So the technician's job is to keep the gear running and the engineer's job is to sculpt the sound so it reaches its final destination, and to make sure that you can retrieve it from its destination, whether that's analog tape like it was in our day, or it's a hard drive. Um, it's no good if you store something somewhere and it doesn't come back. So it's all all the technical aspects, as well as the artistry of sculpting sounds. That's in the hands of the audio engineer. Um, starting as his technician I repaired some broken equipment that he had there and got a new console installed but he figured and he was smart enough to recognize that if you know how the gear if you know how to wire up the gear you you can engineer you can use the equipment in other words so Mm -hmm. it's actually in the business those are distinct roles Mm -hmm. so Prince was wise enough to recognize that if you're an audio technician and you can repair the equipment well you know how it works so that means you can use it so uh um what i did was just sit down in that engineering chair and facilitate his his wishes right. as uh in in other words plug everything in for him get everything routed do, do the track assignments and as He and I got to know each other better over the years. He gave me more and more responsibility and more freedom in shaping that sound. For example, he might ask me to uh, either call or he'd leave a note on the console that says uh, set up such and such, this song or that song, get a rough mix going, plug in these instruments because we're going to be working. So I would Mm -hmm. I would set everything up and get it all ready to roll. He'd come in and, and sit down and just start going from one instrument to the next. When we were working on a brand new song, the way he liked to do it was um he'd usually call. I I usually would never get enough sleep. So I would have been asleep for maybe four hours or five hours and be woken up with a phone call and he'd say, Susan, and he'd tell me what he wanted. And uh, I'd immediately just shower, dress, get to the house as fast as possible. And in the home studio, this is before Paisley Park was built. Yeah. My job was to give him everything he had asked for in that list, which might be drum machine, uh, routing all that, or it might be acoustic drums, miking up the drums and getting sound and, and bringing those faders up, plugging in all the instruments that he had requested. Of course, he had a variety of keyboards to choose from, so he would mm-hmm. say which specific instruments he wanted set up. He'd let me know if he wanted his guitar direct through the direct box or if you wanted it mic'd through an amp and i knew his sound pretty well at this Mm -hmm. point i came in knowing his sound having having been a a fan of his so uh, yeah routing everything and uh dialing in some reverbs going over to each reverb and compressor and limiter and delay and just uh, picking some settings some of the typically the favorites that I knew he liked but also picking occasionally some, some new things that I wanted to hear I thought well this might be a nice change of pace and then <laughs> if he liked those new settings those new tones that he'd keep it and if he didn't we'd just change it back to what he had before he'd come in and we'd work um, very systematically you know, moving from from the rhythm instruments to the top line to usually, remember this is analog tapes, you've only got 24 tracks. You stop at some point after you've got the basic track, uh, hang his vocal mic in the control room, usually a big tube mic hung on a boom stand, set that up and get it all routed and dial in the reverb that he likes when he sings and get in his headphone mix, and then uh, leave the room and let him do his vocals all, on his own lead and backing vocals uh, you label a patch cord with a piece of white tape and mm-hmm. when he was let's say he's doing a vocal on track 16 and needs to now do the backing vocals he can just move the patch cord one over and uh, he, he knows how to arm the remote on the tape machine so yeah he, he, he would just he'd do his vocals that way come back in listen to these incredible vocals and he'd usually take a break after after vocals it's very draining hmm. so he'd go upstairs and take a break and I could play with the track for a little bit I could do uh, just, just some rough mixing or just cleaning up or just, just playing around with it pull all the faders down and just th- th- now we're not mixing for headphones anymore now we're mixing for the speakers and that's a different kind of mix so yeah just, just re-blend it a little bit and, and get ready for the next things that he might want to over up now, this next stage in all records, not just Prince records,
0: mm.
1: is perhaps the most crucial because it's at this final, the final 25%, where a song can either turn a corner and go down one street or turn a corner and go down another. And those streets were for him and for other artists as well um, the street of being release worthy uh something you'd put on the album or maybe even be a single mm-hmm. or the opposite street was yeah we didn't quite realize this it's not right. it's not done to our satisfaction it's a, maybe a good idea for a later time or maybe it's a good song for a different artist but we didn't quite get it. it's not quite record ready so it's in that final 25 percent with that mm-hmm. ornamentation Mm-hmm. That you either build the song up or maybe you strip it back down that 's where you are in essence framing the central object, and the central object is is the song itself, so of this song itself, how have we realized it is it Did, did we hit our marks is it Is it worthy of being on a record mm-hmm. so that stage was always intense and kind of kind of quiet, but yeah. after After we got past that and we knew what this was, that's when he got talkative. That's when he would just open up. Because now all the hard thinking is done. And uh, then he would start getting talkative and he'd talk about what's going on in his life or not his personal life, his business life, Uh, things that are on his mind. He might call band members and have band members come down if he had done all the instrumentation himself. The exception, of course, was Eric Leeds on saxophone because the mm-hmm. saxophone was one instrument he didn't play. So that was if we were working on our own, but a lot of times we were working with the Revolution right? at rehearsal, and there was recording equipment set up at rehearsal as well. In that case, he'd teach the song to the band on stage. They'd come up with their own arrangements. I mean, you've got Lisa Coleman, you've got Wendy Melvo, and you've got Matt Fink. They're gonna come up with their own parts. Mm they're going to uh, contribute to the arrangement and I'm there on the floor Capturing and recording this when we're ready to go. When when the I've got lots of time to dial in the sounds because they're really it's fun to arrange with the whole band. So uh, you you can try things out in a lot of different ways when you've got these good players who are responsive and know your style and everything. So I had more time to dial in sounds there, although we're at rehearsal, so the audio signal quality is not as good as at home.
0: Yeah. So I I didn't realize because I was listening, obviously, listening to some of your interviews. That let's go crazy. For example, that was recorded and live, wasn't it? Like live, it was during the mm-hmm. rehearsal space. Yeah. And um, and one of the things you said that I loved, you were talking about the difference between sound and music, and you were saying that sometimes perhaps the sound quality, perhaps that you might be looking for as an engineer, might not have happened, but the music itself was doing was doing the work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Audio engineers and technicians, and I suppose this is true for video or for film, for photographers, you can lose sight of the forest when your goal is to become an expert at trees. You you work so hard to understand an invisible signal, Mm. a sound wave that comes from a vibrating source uh, is not something you can see. So you're manipulating things based on theories in some cases, and uh, you you get taught uh, how to push these sound waves around to achieve a certain effect. Mm -hmm. The same way that a painter learns to push paint around on canvas to give you... Skin and hair and cloth and wood and fruit and leaves and trees and sky. It's all one medium. It's Mm. oil paint. But it needs to reflect light to give the viewer a sense that it's not oil paint, that it's Mm -hmm. something else. So it's the same thing in audio you're you're pushing these signals around and it requires quite a bit of a bit of technique especially in the analog days which was a non-linear storage medium to get it to do what you want it to do and you're working so hard on that you get the microscope so dialed down so far and so close that you can forget that no one's buying that no one goes into a record store to buy sounds. They go yeah. into a record store to buy music. Yeah. You have to have that capacity to dial that microscope all the way back and, and ask yourself, is it working musically? Is it, what, what is the function of this work? And how is it going to function for people out there in the world? What will it make them think? Are the lyrics good? What will it make them feel? Is the melody good? How will it make them move? Is the rhythm good? Uh, Will it enter someone's nervous system Mm -hmm. and make a connection in a way that is, one, pleasing, and two, reflects a part of themselves? It's not enough to make music that people say, oh, that's good, Mm -hmm. because that doesn't sell records. Yeah. (laughs) In class with all my students all the time, they're always playing me things that I think are good. That's great. But I don't need to own that record or play it again. The reaction that you want is for someone to say to him or herself, I want that. I need that. Need is stronger than like, way stronger. Yeah. When you hear a piece of music that you realize that's the music of me, I need that. It answers a question for me. It solves a problem. It gets me to move in the way that I want to move. It's me. It's me. (laughs) I love that feeling. I love that feeling. I've loved it my whole life. I've made a career out of it. When you have that response to music, what it means is those performance gestures, that work has tapped something in your psyche that is true. It came from something in the psyche of the musician that was true and it entered your psyche and you went, yeah, recognition. That's me too. I'm that too. Only you've got the skill to play and sing and write. I don't have that skill, but listening, I recognize, yeah, you're totally expressing Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Prince was smart enough to recognize that um, he was smart enough at age 25 to recognize that his fans who came to his shows weren't interested in him as much as they were interested in themselves that in him they saw a reflection of a person or some aspect of themselves that they would like to be Mm. or that they they relate to and don't actually show so back to the engineer's job the engineer's job to, to really 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 be an artist with it is to uh, be able to dial that microscope all the way in to the technical details all the way out to how those details serve a larger function in the bigger picture right that's so great
0: I, one of the things I'd love to know, you know, you sing when you listen to something, you're just like, I need that. Like there is some music where I remember where I was when I heard it for the first time. Like I remember being um, deep when I heard D'Angelo's Brown Sugar for the first time. I was sitting in a friend's Skoda, this really <laughs> ugly Skoda in Soho outside this place called Bar Italia. And I heard the first chord. da. And I I was like, who is this? Who's this? You know, and interestingly, you know, D'Angelo is heavily influenced by Prince, which is quite interesting. But for you, is there something when you've heard, obviously apart from Prince or maybe as well as Prince, where you've thought, I need this music, I need it. Is there any artists that that, you've had that same response uh, to?
1: Pretty much. Everyone in my iTunes library, uh, I, 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 I am a voracious and, as all good listeners are, a greedy, selfish listener. Mm-hmm. When we listen to music, when we bond to it, when we fall in love with it, it's reflecting some aspect of ourselves. And it's uh, not unlike romance. Mm-hmm. It's um, We all know objectively what good-looking means we all know objectively what uh, wealthy means or Mm. um, I don't know intelligent or well-spoken all those qualities we might look for in a a mate athletic or physically filled or whatever but just because someone has those qualities it doesn't mean that that person is what you want Mm -hmm. and when you recognize someone you're attracted to you automatically you just kind of know it you just kind of realize now that's what i'm talking about and that person may be less than perfect in terms of all these other qualities that society values but they're perfect for you and it's the same thing with music um i'll give you some examples do you know alice coltrane yes, John yes. Coltrane.
0: yes i know alice coltrane
1: <laughs> alice coltrane you listen to alice coltrane and For me, my response is, wow, what I wouldn't give to be able to think like that. Wow. That's the reaction. And a part of me wants to be that Uh and so loves that. Uh, Then I, I, I mention her all the time, but I love her lyric writing. That's Lana Del Rey. I love her lyric writing. I love that she has embodied Lana Del Rey's not her real name. She has embodied another character that isn't her. And that character is melodramatic and is woman with a capital W and is sexy and sensual. And the the things that I'm not, the things (laughs) that I have never been, I like pretending that I'm that. Of course, right. it's 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 uh, when I listen to Rihanna, I, I I, she has nothing in common with me, nothing. And yet when I listen to her or Beyonce, I, I'm listening to these women, and and I'm 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 imagining, what would it feel like, to be that woman, mm-hmm. when I listen to, Bob Dylan or John Prine, what would it be like. To be such a poet, uh, to be such a poet. When I, when I listen to, um, I'm, uh, lately I've been listening to a lot of artists on the Chess record label. That old school stuff, you okay. know, going back to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. Right. This morning, in my head, all morning has been "Smokestack Lightning" by uh, Howlin' Wolf. What would it feel like to have that wide of a pipeline mm. to into your psyche? Like there are a few artists who just, and Brian Wilson is another one. Now, Brian Wilson, Brian Wilson and Howland Wolf could not be more opposite yeah. in terms of um, their life experiences. <laughs> but they're the same in terms of how readily and quickly they could tap into their own psyches and bring an unfiltered, unadulterated expressivity out of them. Uh, through Brian Wilson, it was filtered through a lot of formal musical training. In Howlin' Wolf, it was just filtered through uh, just an innate, deep and innate musical mm-hmm. talent. So when I listen to those things, the artists that I love, it taps, it taps aspects of myself mm-hmm. that are nowhere near the surface. But are there quite deeply? Uh, on the surface, I'm I'm an engineering type. I'm a PhD. I'm a neuroscientist. On the surface, I, I don't behave anywhere near the way these folks that I admire mm. behave. Which is why I love their music so much, right. because they're they're they an aspect of me that I am not.
0: Mm. I, I love I love that. Yeah. I and the, the way music just is able to connect us and connect us to each other. In ways that you know that words can't. There's so many things can't, but music just sort of bypasses all of those things. It's so powerful. There's a phrase that I've I've heard you say where you're quoting Prince, and you talk about music being like the street you live on. <clears throat> and this sort of resonant frequency where your your everyone is like vibrating your your body is almost responding to the thing you're listening to so tell me a little bit abo- a bit a little bit more about that especially because you know you're in the sciences and the work you do with psychoacoustics and neuroscience tell me a little bit more about that
1: well i'm currently researching it i have a uh, co-author uh, he and i are are signed to Norton Publishing, and we're writing a book right now uh, on music listening. But we're also doing a research project that we've just finished. Uh, we, we just submitted this manuscript in hopes of getting it published. But anyway, it concerns it concerns the the kinds of rewards that listeners seek, and the kinds of rewards they have received in the past from music listening. Mm. So. Just as food has to satisfy certain parts of our metabolism, food can be just mere calories. There are some folks out there who really don't have any particular interest in food. They eat because they have to. They get it over with and they get on with their day. (laughs) (laughs) And there are some folks who are foodies and are gourmands and who want their relationship with food to be Uh, a really enriching experience. Mm -hmm. And then there are the folks who are addicted to it and who who eat too much. there, There are all kinds of ways in which we can interact with the stimulus that is food. It's the same thing with music. And that's why one person's ceiling can be another person's floor. When I'm seeking music to satisfy me, I personally, as we all do, so there's nothing unique about that, I've got a sweet spot for where I like the rhythm and from where I like the groove. Mm-hmm. I, I know right where I want that snare to land. Mm-hmm. And I know how, the relationship I want between that hi-hat and that snare. I know the dynamic that I'm seeking in the arc of a song. Rock mm-hmm. music, for example, traditionally is verse, then chorus. The chorus gets really big and then verse and then chorus. And then there's bridge, <laughs> which takes us to another plane. And then we chorus out that's all well and good but for me personally my body is most responsive to and more deeply satisfied by um the format that's typically adopted in rhythm and blues music Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of soul music where you just just get a groove and as prince used to say to his band on stage once you get that groove don't move yeah don't move and you just let that groove not move for four minutes, five minutes, six minutes, and at the end of four, five, six minutes, it's killing, killing, because it feels so (laughs) good. That that groove's got to be just right. I mean, one little slip and you've broken the spell. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, We recognize that many of us like our music to, engage us from the waist down. Music with hips. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally, that's the street I live on. I've always personally been most engaged by music um, based on its rhythm that 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 that's my groove uh uh the the reason smokestack lightning has been in my head this morning is that guitar part i can groove on that all day so groove-based music is going to engage you from the waist down but many of us and i'm one too we love melody we love having our feelings either uh matched or changed by uh, a melody that just wipes us out it just Mm -hmm. wipes us out many of us are looking to have music touch our hearts Mm -hmm. and then there is uh there are those folks who value music mostly for the uh lyrical rewards that it has provided lyrics can uh, solve problems for us. They can give us a, an alternate identity. Uh, that that's music that makes us think. And human beings are most likely to bond to music when they're teenagers. But when you're a teenager, that's when you you don't know you don't know how to be in the world. You don't know. You, you get all these problems, and you're all self-conscious, and you think everybody's looking at you, and nobody is. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you're, you know, that, that at age twelve, thirteen, you're 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 too old to be cute, and you're too young to be interesting. <laughs> so it's that awkward age, and you come home from school, and you you just feel terrible because you had a fight with another kid, or your teacher embarrassed you, or whatever. And you put on some music with lyrics. They take care of you. They mm-hmm. solve that problem for you. They tell you, this is what you should think. This is what you should say. This is the attitude you should have. And what do we do when someone takes care of us when we're hurting? We bond to them. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. bond to those who have been caregivers for us when we when we needed them. So uh, it's a long-winded way of saying that all of us are seeking rewards Right. When we choose a piece of music or an artist to listen to, the reward we're seeking depends on on those the 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 reward network that we want activated and there are right. many of them there are many of them and the reward network that that street we live on, that neural street we live on develops um, in our youth just like our tastes for food. Uh, it, it, the mechanism is not known but you, you you develop just like people some people grow into artists and some become athletes and some mm-hmm. become entrepreneurs and some become just, uh, any number of things anything we do a lot we tend to get really good at mm-hmm. and anything we get good at tends to be rewarding so uh you mm-hmm. think of it like a tree that that's just growing there are a lot of folks who did not get particularly rewarded by music in their youth and uh, they like it they like it just fine but they like it as a, as an accessory to life right. uh, more than more than um, I should mix I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here but I should say they like it as a side dish yes. not a, not as a main meal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, that's great. A lot of records have been sold. Careers have been made yeah. from those people yeah. who aren't deeply involved with music, mm-hmm. but, but enjoy it and they like it. Just like, I don't know, cheese pizza or... or or cheeseburgers, that's not, you know, it's not the best possible food, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly among the most popular food. It's what people like. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the best. It has to be functional. Yeah. It's so...
0: I wanted to just reverse a little bit because I'm thinking when you were talking, I'm thinking of groove. And I was listening to, because I think about this a lot because I'm a songwriter, but I'm a huge, for example, hip hop fan. And I'll listen to, so I was listening to the Ballad of Dorothy Parker or Raspberry Beret or Kiss. And I was thinking, why every time I hear the Ballad of Dorothy Parker, I just want to move? I was like, is it the tempo? Is it where the bass is placed? Is it the way the kick drum is playing? And so, for example, with hip hop, where it's groove, it's just, it's rhythm and bass, and it's, it's something that repeats. So that thing you're saying, when Prince would say, just stay right there. There's something about hip hop that you have this, you know, you'll see when people are moving to hip hop, they're kind of nodding their heads and they're moving in a certain way that um, their body is responding and you can't help it. What do you think is in, is it tempo as well? Like I said, the ballad of Dorothy Parker, I just couldn't help but move. I couldn't mm. I couldn't keep still. <laughs> or kiss. You know get you know what I mean? It's like, so why? I guess I'm asking you why. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's been some work done on that. Um, we know that human beings have a sweet spot for tempos, and it's uh, around 100 beats per minute. Actually, right. Kiss is 105 beats per minute, uh, or that between 100 and 120. Most popular music is in that zone. Uh, it used to be thought years ago that the tempi that we prefer had to do with our heart rate. It's Got nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the tempo that feels good to move to. We've got right. two arms and we've got two legs, and this. This is why people prefer music in either 2-4 four or 4-4 four, four time compared to 3-4 time because we can synchronize our arms and legs to it. And that 100 beats per minute is that nice tempo that activates uh, our nervous system in uh, something called the beta band frequency. Mm-hmm. So uh, the human nervous system oscillates at different rates throughout the day and you've got your uh, delta theta alpha beta and gamma delta and theta are very low frequency oscillations um, that are going on in our nervous system when we're asleep right e, or unconscious if you're you know, maybe you're undergoing an operation or something like that you're, they've knocked you out and taken your nervous system so far down that you are so unconscious you don't feel anything you don't see anything which is a great thing and you don't remember anything Mm-hmm. Then there's uh once you're awake, you're in that soft, low, mellow state. It, we can call it an alpha state, but that's when you're oscillating between uh, 8 and roughly 13 Hertz. In there, just above the alpha band, is the beta band, and that refers to oscillations roughly between uh 15 and 30 hertz. And then above that is uh, 30 hertz to 100 hertz, that's the gamma band. And the gamma band is when your body's either really moving or cognitively you're thinking hard or you're very highly stressed or your nervous system is highly aroused. So the beta band is in the middle. Mm -hmm. And work done by Anirudh Patel and others, Paul Iverson, has shown that music increases the amplitude of those beta band oscillations so what music does for us is it 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 pumps us up and wakes us up when we're first waking up in the morning it can take you from that sleepy alpha state you listen to music on the drive into work or whatever and it can get you all right now i'm awake and i'm ready for the day and it can also calm you down Mm. if you've just finished a really tough or stressful day listening to music can get you from that gamma state into that beta state So talking about why things feel good, first of all, there there are a range of, of tempos in which music feels pretty good to us. But beyond that, it's all quite individual individual mm-hmm. you mentioned hip-hop there's a certain motion there's a certain mm-hmm. dance that goes with hip-hop and it tends to be kind of up and down it's never been the street where i live my street has always <laughs> been a, a push pull a back right. and forth it's like when you're listening to prince you're we used to call it the pigeon neck you know your head is yeah. doing that yeah. front to back yes Yes, some people like a dance that goes up and down. Some people like a dance that goes side to side. Some people like a dance that goes front to back. We all have a certain movement that feels good to our bodies. And what we want to be able to do is to take our arms and legs and we want our body to land right where the sound has landed. We want to be in sync with the sound that we're hearing, but all of us have different bodies. All of us like to move a different way. And that's why, for me personally, mm-hmm. my favorite drummer of all time, uh, the late, great Al Jackson Jr., right. who played on all those the records on the Stacks label. And okay. he, he did a lot of work with Al Green. If you listen to I'm Still in Love With You or Let's Stay Together, right. Al right. Green, that's Al Jackson Jr. Okay. Green Onions, you know, Booker T and the MGs, that's mm-hmm. my drummer because... <laughs> That snare lands exactly where my body wants it to land. Could not be more it. perfect. But other people will listen to, to Al Jackson Jr. and they might go, "Oh no, no, no! This isn't right. They're not right for me." Yeah. Because they they, they they want they want their signal to 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 synchronize with their own bodies, and that's mm-hmm. going to be just ever so slightly different. Mm-hmm. Now it's not just the drummer who's carrying the rhythm. Remember that vocalists. Can either be in front of the beat they can be behind the beat they've got yep. this phrasing that can slip and slide and uh sometimes we want our singers to be on the beat and sometimes we love a singer like can be a frank sinatra or an ella fitzgerald or a more modern singer linda ronstadt was great at this who can be way out in front of the band mm. in such a just freaking amazing because she's 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 leading the dance exactly. and the band yeah. is following her and supporting the words she's saying uh scotty moore who was the guitarist for elvis presley uh, scotty talked about elvis's acoustic guitar playing and he said elvis was the drummer for all intents and purposes i'm paraphrasing him but wow. he said, uh, it was elvis elvis led on acoustic guitar we just followed elvis when you listen to that early elvis stuff you hear elvis's The pure musician that Elvis was when he started, you hear that on acoustic guitar, you you, you, you hear Mm. his influences and you hear that, that he listened to the musicians around Memphis and he knew how they played and that was the sound he was going for.
0: That's, fasc- that's fascinating i'm just thinking of people like um ricky lee jones or or um joni mitchell or tom waits who weren't I wouldn't call them percussive, well not because you're not talking about percussiveness, but you're talking about sort of how the the vocals are also part of the rhythm. Mm. But in the sense of them shaping, I mean, they're also lyrics. So they're all the things you're talking about, you know, how we connect to words. But there was something about like if I hear Ricky Lee Jones sing also because she has such an unusual voice. I'm totally transported straight away it's like it's taken me somewhere else it's the, it's not and it's not just the sound it's it's how she almost I think a bit like Joni Mitchell and Tom Waits they're poets with their voices and I think that's also again why I connect with hip-hop because the hip-hop that I love from the 90s, Tribe Called Quest, Diggable Planets, um, you know, Mos Def, Kweli. those people for me they were poets but over a beat. And I I love the up and down rather than forward Mm, and back. mm, mm,
1: It's It's so interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I talked over you. I didn't need to do that, but I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Just like if we go into a restaurant, we all order different things pretty much from the menu because of what we're craving because of our appetites. So our musical appetites are driven by biological processes, just like not exactly like, but, there's a parallel with our, our appetites for food. This Mm. can, This food can taste really good, but I'm also choosing things that I need right now. Mm. I I might need something that's heavy in carbohydrates or something that's heavy in Mm. protein or something that's heavy in fat, depending. And likewise with our music, we're choosing something that's rewarding, but also what we need right now. Mm -hmm. The right song played in the wrong context won't be rewarding. It's got to match your needs. But uh, talking about those great poets, one of the things that they do quite well is they know where the value is in, in the record they're making. Right. And, and either they or their producers know, uh, probably both, how to frame the shot such that the listener gets the full weight of, the, of, of where the good stuff is. Mm. So in other words, uh, it's a little bit like I, I would imagine casting a movie when you've got great actors, mm. the, you know, the really experienced actors who've been around the block, when you've got great actors and you've got a great script, you better not have explosions and car chases and all this stuff going on in the background mm. that's distracting us because our attention needs to be on what's great about it, what's great at these amazing performances and the script In contrast, if what you've got is a good story with, let's say, child actors, let's go back to those early Harry Potter movies, they were just little kids, Mm. quite talented, but still little kids. So what are we framing here? You can't be the performances of the actors because they're not old enough yet. It has to be be the story. And in this Mm -hmm. case, we want fights and dragons and flying around on brooms and we want peril and we want action. We need Mm -hmm. that because that's that's where the value is. As the characters aged and they got better at acting, now we can have slower scenes that uh, where the camera just rests on their face and we know what these mm. characters are thinking. So likewise with music, what a producer has to do is assess what's good about it and where, who, who's carrying the weight of this picture? Right. Who's carrying the weight? If you've got a great lyricist. If you got a, if you got a Bob Dylan or a Tom Waits or a John mm-hmm. Prine or you've got a maybe you've got a Joni Mitchell or you've got a Ricky Lee Jones, let them carry most of this picture let them be the lead actor let the vocals be the lead actor and then you're going to need you're going to need some supporting actors Mm -hmm. but that can just be the instrumentation and you need to uh i mean you in your arrangements understand the role of the supporting actors working with this this lead actor who is giving us an experience you think about framing the shot in terms of will it be a close-up or will the will it be wide should we see the horizon here or should it feel claustrophobic all of these things matter in in record making just like they do in in movie making
0: yeah I, i love that and it leads me on nicely to 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 my next question because you also are a producer you're not just an engineer well not I don't want to say not just an engineer you are in addition to being an engineer you're also a producer so I know you did um Tricky's album Bare Naked Ladies you did uh The Jacksons I didn't know that mm-hmm. um Patty LaBelle is that is that did you do Patty LaBelle?
1: No, I never did. Uh, now, sometimes you work on a record with a different artist, and then uh, that, like for instance, I did a record with David Byrne. It was a song that wasn't released. It went to Selena Gomez, and she ended up doing it. And so on my discography, it might list an right. artist I never worked with, but it's on my discography because I'm responsible for some of the tracks. I so, see. no, unfortunately, I would have given anything to work with Patty LaBelle, but unfortunately, yeah. I didn't
0: see okay well that's that's great because i mean you have a a really solid uh, body of work that's so actually so diverse that's actually the thing that struck me how diverse it is but um in terms of production there is a thing that um prince said you were talking about when you were making his records that there are sort of three core songs and then you sort of build from those three core songs, which I thought was a really interesting idea because I'm making my record. So I'm like, hmm, that's a really interesting thought. So for example, with sign of the times, what were like the three, were there three core songs or like that he built outwards from there?
1: Well, it can be more than three. Uh, the reason that his albums grew from a kernel or seed mm-hmm. of, the core songs was because when i worked with prince we made albums he did not give a lot of thought to singles so much so that on the album around the world in a day he didn't even choose one he said i'm just going to release the whole album and the radio stations can play whatever they feel like playing but he really had very little concern for singles which may be why he either gave away or nearly gave away Two of the biggest, most commercially successful songs he ever wrote, and that's Nothing Compares to You, mm. Gave to the Family. And Kiss was originally for the band Maserati, although he, he took it back because he mm. recognized it did have single potential. So we made albums. What Prince mm. wanted from his fans is that they would sit down in the days of vinyl mm. and have a 35-minute listening experience. And so we, we made something that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, that had an arc Mm -hmm. in order to perfect that arc you would be wise to recognize that great is a big word and if you think you're putting out an album with 10 great songs well good for you you'd be the first person in history to ever do it Mm -hmm. albums don't go like that greatness doesn't go like that what great all the great albums have in common is that there are a few songs that by most critics opinion are damn great. Mm -hmm. So that's what he tried to do is is to find the songs that would be the seed of this record that would have some cohesion, something Mm -hmm. in common between them and would form the the record's outlook and its philosophy. Other songs would then be chosen to complement that seed so that it would have momentum at the beginning so that it would have more than one peak somewhere in the middle and so that it would end on the note he wanted to end on album sequencing was hugely important to him we spent a lot of time on that and many uh, of his lesser songs appeared on the album only because they assisted the sequencing uh think of play in the sunshine on Mm -hmm. the album sign of the times i mean play in the sunshine was was just there it's not a great song not Mm -hmm. by any measure it's good it's a good track we sped through that thing we just sped through it because it just needed to function as a segue piece in between scenes, just like a great uh, television program that's maybe 30 minutes long or so, 45 minutes long, is going to have, it can't have all action scenes. I mean, it's going to have the, 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 the momentum in the beginning, and then they're going to do some backstory, and then it's like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Okay, all of that was building up to this scene. Mm-hmm. all right now that we have this scene our next action is going to go like this and then it's this so he he he, he taught me that it, it it mattered greatly to him mm-hmm. the the albums the, the the sequence of songs and um and and how the album flowed and that's why some of his greatest pieces ended up in the vault because they were great but they weren't right for the album. That's incredible gosh
0: Um, So I love what you're saying about I guess, an an album having an arc and having a world, which actually makes sense, you know, listening, I was listening back to his records, I thought, gosh, these albums have a world. But now as we sort of advances in technology and we make music differently, and I always say that technology has kind of democratized the arts in many ways. Yeah. So. I don't need to be a photographer, I can just use my phone and or music equipment is so good now I don't really need to understand it. But you said something so interesting, because I know you teach analog tape class, but you were saying that, you know, because you used to have just 24 tracks and it meant you had to craft the song so that it would fit these 24 tracks. But now we can, you know, we have auto tune, we can shift timings of things. You said that it's actually de it deprofessionalizes the recording artists. And I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about how you feel about that.
1: Well, um, recording engineers—I won't—I won't. I think uh, let's talk about about engineers, and then we can talk about artists. Mm-hmm. Recording engineers in the analog era had to practice their artistry in a in a live session. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you get the band in the studio, and it would be a, a band of four or five players and you put up your microphones and because you had a limited number of tracks the engineers were artists at um, choosing and blending microphones to you might have two microphones on a kick drum but you can only go to one track uh, you might have a top and bottom mic on the snare but only on one track to devote to the snare. So you had to choose your 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 instrumentation and your EQ and all of that really carefully. Mm-hmm. You had to understand the tape transfer function because it's nonlinear. Whatever you put into the machine is not what will come back out. <laughs> it is not flat. We knew that but we had to uh, compensate for that. So we were artists working with a a medium that reflected back to us something different than what we put in. Imagine being a painter. Imagine being a painter and moving paint around on canvas and imagine if the canvas itself (laughs) distorted the paint colors (laughs) or smeared them together or just whatever. You'd have to know how that distortion was going to happen. Imagine being a photographer that takes a picture of something that comes back different from what you saw in the lens. Yeah. But those differences could be fairly extreme in terms of the the frequency spectrum when it came back and also tape compression when it came back off tape. So we were artists at using the medium. Once the digital revolution happened, we now had a storage medium that was linear. What came back was exactly what went in. Mm -hmm. And we had an unlimited number of tracks with an unlimited number of tracks. Not in in a real sense, but virtual a virtual unlimited number, it meant that you could delay those important decisions of how to blend different timbres and you can right. you don 't have to decide now, just record everything and then decide later. so it changed the role of the engineer and it eliminated a skill set that folks from my generation had worked for years to to master that mm. 's no longer necessary anymore. Um, it made it much more systemic and automatic. You can follow a sequence of commands, push this button to arm the track and, and, and you just follow a sequence of commands and you can, you can, you can be a recording engineer, but you aren't necessarily a recording, you're not, not necessarily an artist at engineering mm-hmm. in the ways that we were in those days. Now for musical artists, the difference is that you, um, Well, this is going to be slightly long-winded, but bear with me. In the olden days, Mm -hmm. back when uh, records were sold in record stores and people didn't, you know, download them uh, illegally or download them for free, in the olden days, the way it would happen is your teenagers... In, in, in your teenager and, or your child and you've learned how to play a musical instrument and you practice 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 for endless hours and you get pretty good at it and then maybe when you're in school you hang out with some other musicians and you guys decide to form a band now you got a band and now and you, you play together and now you get used to hearing yourself but in an ensemble with other people and having your parts match the parts of other people and you do what all kids do in the beginning you learn the popular songs of the day and you play them and maybe you even get a few gigs maybe you play at school and stuff like that so you're starting to get rewarded for all of the practice that you went Mm. through people are noticing you and they're applauding for you and they're you're doing pretty good so with that you're inspired and if there are a couple of writers in the band you may want to start adding some original material to these covers that you're doing, and you start writing a little bit, and these little gigs that you play around town for friends and family and other kids you know, you're starting to add a new song or two that you guys wrote. Mm -hmm. If the band manages to stay together during their college years and you're playing college gigs and you're playing around a college campus, you might be the first person on a bill with ten other bands, but if you're good enough and you can live with the humiliation of having your ass handed to you by the next band that took the stage after you was better than you at stage presence, you will develop your set, your songs, your stage Mm. presence. You'll develop a look. You'll develop the skill of connecting with an audience sitting there right in front of you. Mm. You'll know which songs in your set turn them off and which songs they respond to. You're performing your trade. You're applying your craft in front of a living, breathing listener, right there. Mm. Now, how how it used to work in the old days, you'd have to play a lot of gigs, you have to write a lot of material. But if you got good enough, and you're moving up that bill, you'd start playing the bigger and bigger clubs. If you you can keep it together, keep the band together, as well as your sanity, if you can tour and and get known, the talent scouts will come and find you. So the A&R executives would fly in, they'd catch a few of your shows, they'd talk to you, and then they'd, If you were lucky, they'd sign you to a record deal. After they signed you to a record deal, the AR person and the band would find a producer. You choose a producer and you go into the studio Mm. and you'd make a record. Mm. You'd make a record at the end of a very long process that involved years of building an audience. When I worked with the band Rusted Root, Michael Glabicki, the lead singer, told me, he said, we almost didn't sign with Mercury because we had sold 90,000 units out of our van. Wow. And that's when you'd make your own CDs in the 90s. So by the time I saw, as a producer, by the time I saw what was called a baby band doing their first debut record, for the most part, most of them had a fan base already and they had stage presence and mm. they had material and a set list and they'd suffered the humiliation of being on the road with bands that were better than they were. Mm. The competition had brought them up and and, and taught them to, uh, their talent was contained by a certain kind of pressure and that pressure is the forces of the marketplace keeping you on your game. So record making came later after you had a game Got in you. this in this democratized world. A lot of folks think, okay, I think I'd really like to be a professional musician or rock star or pop star. I think I'll make a record. I see. So start by making a record. No one has ever endorsed your capacity to make a record. No one has seen you live. Uh, no fans have uh, given you the finger or thrown things at you on stage or uh, turned away in the middle of your most heartfelt song or (laughs) Mm. talked over your performance. No marketplace has tried out your product, the product that you are now spending money and time to make and sell. Fascinating. And that's fascinating. So the difficulty is that this process will um it will reward some mm. but the the folks that it rewards have to they have to be quite extraordinary in their capacity to understand the human music connection and to understand what people want mm. without ever having seen it for yourself prince was one of the rare individuals who got signed at age 18 he did Uh, he did gigs, uh, lots of them in high school, but he he didn't do touring or anything like that Mm. before he got his first record deal. He just happened to be extremely prolific as a songwriter and with a talent, and he had charisma, so the label took a chance on him. But uh, let's let's set those outliers aside for a moment and think about the average artist. Uh, Most of them do need to go through those steps Mm. of plying their wares in the marketplace of ideas, uh, to see whether or not people will like what they're selling. And of course, to learn that stage presence, to learn what Prince used to call your camera face, what do people see when they see you? Uh, he would make his band, well, he always re- videotaped rehearsals. He'd make his band watch those back when we were doing rehearsals for a show. This is what you look like. This is what you sound like. This is what people are gonna see when they see you. That was hugely important to him, hugely. Wow. At the, re- at the rehearsal room at Paisley Park, rehearsal room in the middle, one wall was all mirrors, just like for dancers, But so the band could rehearse looking at themselves
0: incredible that's so interesting because it makes a lot of sense for me when I've seen what I call like the veterans perform so I saw Gladys Knight perform live and you know she's a pensioner she's a lady in her 70s and she was she was at Wembley Arena which is a big space She just had her, I love her, you know, she wears her pantsuits with the sparkly shoulders. And I was amazed at how she could command this whole crowd. And she wasn't jumping up and down. She was just walking. And I thought, but they have what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. the years, Larry Graham, the same, Shaka Khan, the same. That stuff you can't, you can only learn by doing, you know. I, I really believe what you're saying.
1: And when they go, when those artists go into the studio to make a record, Now, there's no audience there, but they know how to sing to that microphone. So they got that piece of metal and plastic right in front of them, and they're in that vocal booth. But they know how to deliver to a microphone in a way that uh, helps them deliver to us when we're wearing headphones or earbuds or listening over speakers. They know how to make that connection that extends beyond just the release of air out of their lungs. Uh, You mentioned these great performers. One of the greatest I ever saw, I think I would put her tops on the list, was Etta James. Wow. This was later in her life, and she had a big band, eight or ten pieces, and I think a couple of her sons were in the band. I'd never before that seen anyone read an audience the way she did. It was at the House of Blues in, in Los Angeles, and she's sitting on this was when she was heavy, she's sitting on a stool in the front of the stage, and with her right hand, she's cueing the band. Now, her over her right shoulder was the band leader, the band director. He was her guitar player. That whole set, he was following her like a leopard. He never took his eyes off of her. Wow. So she's watching the crowd, and she's reading whether they wanted to go up or down. And the crowd was just in the palm of her hand. She was so expert at having us captivated and then she would do these hand signals with her right hand to either you know go around again do another chorus or bring it down or bring it up or you know do a full stop here and so the the guitar player would watch her hands and as soon as he got that signal he would then turn and translate that to the rest of the band so the rest Mm -hmm. of the band is watching him he's watching her and she's the band leader she's leading the music that is ultimately finding its way back to us. Uh, I've seen a lot of live shows in my day by a lot of great artists. Mm -hmm. Uh, She took the cake for her capacity to make, to play us, to make that Mm -hmm. connection with the audience such Mm -hmm. that uh, we uh, talk about serving us a a meal. I mean, we just could not have been more satisfied with that great show.
0: I'd love to, I've got so many questions, but there's time and you have things to do. <laughs> you are what I would call a rare bird in the, the way Prince was a rare bird, really and truly. Um, you are still one of the very few women that do what you do. And you were doing when even less women were doing it. And what I would love to know, and I ask all my guests this, but what lessons have you learned that you think we could learn from?
1: Um, well, there's a few. I'll tell you the things that have served me well. That I didn't, I didn't choose these. I, I didn't choose to be attuned to this, but being attuned to it served me well. One was, um, I'm very, very good at knowing myself. I'm really good at enjoying. My mental fantasies and daydreams, and at knowing what I want—I've always been good at that. At knowing what I want got me a career in the music business, and it got me in the career, a career in the sciences now, and now as as an author writing this book. I've always known what I have wanted, not what I chose, like a piece of fruit off of a tree, but I've always known the tree that was growing inside me. Uh, there's there's a difference between knowing what you want and knowing who you are. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I've known what I've wanted, but I based what I wanted on who, who I was, what I was wow. capable of doing. Uh, certain things I, I'd never be capable of doing. I, I would never be a good record executive. I'd, I'd, I'd be terrible at it. Uh, I wouldn't be a good DJ. I wouldn't be a good musical artist. I, 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 there's no way I'd be able to compete. But I'm really good as an engineer. I'm good as a scientist. I'm, I'm good as a thinker. Good as a talker, obviously, still so, has so that means I can write. So, there's that that has served me well. Another thing that served me well, this is so important. I had a good eye and ear and instinct for real talent, mm. I could recognize when somebody was holding that has really served me well. From the time I first heard Prince on the radio, that soft and wet, I recognized, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Whoever that guy is, I want to know. I want to get those records. I've, I've got to hear more. I, I recognized those, those early seeds. I did the same thing with the band Gaggy Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten. Greg is now hugely successful as a record producer. But when I first met Gag, that's what we called him, he was 22 years old, but I heard it Mm-hmm. as well as in his partner Tommy Jordan like oh yeah so uh, developing an ear for greatness uh, and, and, and the ability to recognize raw talent is really important and then related to that a corollary of that is I uh, did not waste my time with lesser talents wow. I was always kind of selfish and greedy as I am in my musical appetites of knowing and wanting what I like I did not I, I did not spend time with talents who I thought would be mediocre at best oh. because I, I didn't think I don't know, there just wasn't, it wasn't satisfying and if there wasn't enough time for that, I wasn't interested in that. Many great producers have taken mediocre talents and made them great. I certainly didn't have that ability, but I did have the ability to recognize greatness and to help at least not destroy it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I worked with some really great talents and all of them taught me things about music that that, uh, that I could then use to go on. So in in speaking of being selfish, when you work with a mediocre talent, you're probably not going to, get a lot from them. You'll give a lot, but you won't get a lot. Whereas when you work with somebody great, you're giving as much as you possibly wow. can, but you're also getting something. You're, wow. you're, you're getting a lot. So that helps keep your forward momentum and it helps make you wiser with each with each record. Those kinds of things have served me well. I, I, uh, I've also uh, been Of course, the usual stuff, you know, responsible to my clients, Mm. um, trying to always be tactful and empathetic and, and, you know, just obeying those good business practices that make people want to work with you again and guarding Mm. your reputation so that um, you don't ever destroy it. Because in the music business, it's very, very tough to get it back if you do destroy it. So all that kind of stuff.
0: That's powerful stuff. My very last question I ask everyone: What music are you listening to?
1: This is this is one of my many heroes, but this is Rick Hall, who was the producer of all those Muscle Shoals records, mm-hmm. which I love so much. Uh, he and Sam Phillips are Sam Phillips from Sun Studios. Um, they're my producer heroes. Um, last summer, I read. Peter Garonnick's biography of Sam Phillips, and it, it just rocked my world so hard, I just couldn't believe it. And I just got the Rick Hall book and just started it yesterday and can't wait to finish it. So lately, the last couple of years, I've been going back to that older music and listening to those raw seeds. A lot of music out of Memphis, out of that golden triangle of Memphis and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, a little bit Nashville as well, but more Memphis than Nashville. And then from there, there was chess records up there in Chicago, Chess records, Home of Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and Lightning Hopkins and all those, uh, Etta James recorded for Chess Records, all those those early records contain the raw, unvarnished germ mm-hmm. of, for me personally, where music lives. Mm. It, it, it's, it's, it's It's that germ that resides in me as well that I am not, that germ never comes to fruition in me, but in these great artists, it does. And when you listen to early Etta James, when you listen to these early artists and you hear them express that, it's the thing that Rick Hall heard in music and developed. It's the thing that Sam Phillips heard and developed. Sam Phillips heard it in Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. And Ike Turner and B.B. Uh, King and all the artists that he discovered. Um, I'm, I'm going back to that, to the germ, the embryo of what music is, mm. just because I enjoy it and I like mm. being in touch with it.
0: Dr. Susan Rogers, it's been such a delight. You're lucky we don't live in the same country or I'll be coming around.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, that would be nice.
0: <laughs> it's been such a delight thank you so much for your your generosity for just being so open you you, you are such a teacher so you're so open so I'm really really thank grateful you.
1: thank you very much thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners I really appreciate it it's nice getting to know you uh, yes. a, a lovely person so thank you very much
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Susan Rogers. I could have talked to Susan for hours. There were so many more questions I wanted to ask, so many more things I wanted to unpack in greater detail. Particularly as a musician, there's a lot of food for thought in what she said about how we approach record making and how we want people to respond to our music. Susan is a wellspring of knowledge. I recommend discovering more of her work, listen to her talks on YouTube. I put a few links in the blur below. Well, that's the end of season one. What a journey. If you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, you'll know that one of the questions I always ask is, what lessons have you learned that we could learn from? Now it's my turn to tell you. I've wanted to do a podcast for a while and I was waiting for the right conditions. Money, equipment, a team of people, etc, etc. But sometimes you just have to start with what you have in your hand, and I've learned that sometimes the right time isn't the time you've planned in your head, sometimes the time is now. And having to do every element of the podcast myself, I've realised that so much of what I do in other areas of my life has served this moment. So, I hope that any of you listening who's wanted to pursue something for a while and you're waiting for the right moment, well, maybe that moment is now. I've also noticed two consistent themes that have emerged from doing these interviews. The first is that if you want to pursue a career in the creative industries, it requires a level of single-mindedness and focus. I love what Susan Rogers said about being intrepid. It's such an apt word. Intrepid meaning to be extremely brave and showing no fear of dangerous situations. Working in the arts can be a dangerous place because there are no guarantees. You do it because you have to, because, to quote Susan again, you need to. I remember hearing this quote once, perseverance will get you further than talent. If talent were the prerequisite for success, I think we'd have a very different creative landscape right now. The ability to persevere, to keep going when things don't go according to plan is essential, especially if you're an independent creative without a huge machine backing you. And lastly, knowing who you are. I love what Susan said. There's a difference between knowing what you want and knowing who you are. Well, after this process, which I think has been compounded by everything that's going on in the world right now, not just this pandemic, but the pandemic of racism and a global awakening for the need to address it. I'm more certain of what I want, what I want to do, who I want to do it with. And that's underpinned by being more grounded in who I am. I'm not trying to sound like a self-help book, but what I've noted from the people I've interviewed who have really gone after what they wanted and have had a measure of success in their fields is that they have a singularity about them because they just know who they are. Which leads me nicely on to thanking once again all the guests that took time out of their days to be a part of this. Thank you to my very first guest, Alev Lenz, who got the ball rolling. If she hadn't said yes so freely, I'm not sure I would have felt so confident to keep going. To Matteo Moeng, Iana Witter Johnson, Mpo Sabina, Rob Cates, Thomas J. Price, Justice McKerley, Jessica Horn, Lucy Bright, Sarah de Courcy, and the incomparable Dr. Susan Rogers, and of course, thank you for listening. Please continue to share, like, comment, subscribe to the podcast at Holding Up the Ladder hashtag HUTL. And as I said last week. Holding Up The Ladder is now on a range of different podcast platforms, including Apple, Stitcher and Spotify. I'm also on Twitter, H-U-T-L underscore. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can do so by clicking the donate link in the blurb below. I hope to be back later in the year for a second season with more exciting, dynamic, brilliant guests. But for now, I'm off to make my own music. So thank you so much again for listening, and as ever. Until next time.